With that, we're going to look at Scripture. And to help us uh, set the stage for Scripture, I want you to meet just a special... Ooh, this is Brooklyn. How old is Brooklyn now? Uh, two and a half weeks. Two and a half weeks. Oh, you're going to let me hold her? Oh, my. Okay. Oh, look at this. Isn't this marvelous? Don't you all wish you had my job? Oh, it's going to be bright, sweetie. It's going to be bright. How many babies do you have? This is your second. So is it different the second time around? Yes. Different? It's, yeah. Eric and Chrissy have let me have her and use her as a prop here for just a few minutes. Isn't she adorable? I don't know if I even want all those lights on her. Oh, stretch. Oh, it feels good to be out of that carrier, doesn't it? Here's why I want you to see this little baby. Oh, if you could just see the face I'm seeing. Oh, life, life is grand, isn't it? And you don't even know it, how grand life is. You know, I have this question for you. If you've ever had the chance to hold a baby like this and it be one of your children or one of your family members, maybe a niece or a nephew, you have this incredible sense of love and tenderness towards a child. Even me holding Brooklyn right now. It's like, what could I do to make this little girl's life to be just absolutely perfect? You have that sense, don't you? And yet the truth is, she's smiling. That's what she's doing. Now she's... See, I just have the touch. <laughs> Not so much first service, but there you go. So here's what I want you to think about. Can Brooklyn in any way describe or articulate her parents' love for her? She knows it intuitively. She knows that if she cries out or she gives the wrong, you know, a signal that they'll come running. And, but she has no sense really of way of articulating how much her parents love her. And yet that love is there, and there's this bond that parents have with their children. And I'm going to give her back to you, Chrissy, before I mess up. <laughs> Thanks, Eric, for letting me borrow her for just a moment. Here's my thought. Did you know that the way in which parents hold children is the way in which God holds you? That you and I, we don't have the ability to really articulate fully God's love for us. Because if we could fully articulate God's love for us, then God's love is only as big as our brain. And our ability to understand God is only as big as our brain. But if God is, if God, is God, then God has to be bigger than who we are. And his love for us is bigger than who we are. And while we can't articulate fully all that love... Nonetheless, you need to know that God looks at you today with an incredible, gracious love that goes beyond your understanding. We're going to spend the next six weeks talking about that. Here's what's happened. You may have noticed that throughout the month of July, I was out of the pulpit. Here's why. I was taking Monday mornings, Tuesday mornings, and Thursdays to uh, focus on a series that we're doing, stepping into today on the book of Romans. And I've never preached in fully for, through the book of Romans before. I've been in pastoral ministry for 30 years, but I've never preached through what, in my opinion, is the most complicated and detailed book of Scripture just that describes God's love in ways that are very, at times, multi-layered and difficult to understand. Part of the problem is that Romans, if you want to grab your Bible and turn there in the New Testament... Romans is um, it's a legal document in, any way, in many ways. 
It's written by a man by the name of Paul, and he's writing um, to some friends and some people he wants to meet in Rome. And it's, do you know what, what a resolution that would be brought before a conference or a convention would look like? It would say, whereas this, and in light of that, and because of this, and so on, and so forth, and so on, and you build a case, and then based on the case that I've built, therefore be it resolved. The book of Romans is that. It's got a bunch of whereas, 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 followed by a therefore and a therefore. And in all honesty, in 30 years of preaching, I've, never, I've preached from Romans, but we've never preached, I've never preached my way through Romans because there are so many whereases and whereases and whereases you can get caught on that and lose the whole message of Romans. I've never frankly felt qualified to do it. And so as we were looking at ways in which we as a congregation or leaders within the church could empower you to talk about what it means of God's love in your life, the sense was, Wayne, take some time away and go figure out Romans. And it's been my job then to distill Romans down into six weeks and see if we can't pull it together. So we're going to learn of God's grace and God's love in the next six weeks, I'm hoping in some new ways. And in the process, we're also going to learn how to extend that grace to ourselves and extend it to others. I need to invite you, though, and tell you, this is going to, you're going to have to put your thinking caps on. You're going to have to buckle your seatbelt. And I'm going to invite you to think seriously for the next six weeks. To do that, would you please consider reading along? This is a read-along series, so we want you to read with us. Maybe you saw the video that came out this past week inviting you to read chapters 1 through 4. This week, you need to read all the way through chapter 7 to prepare for next week. And if you would like to uh, get prompts on that, there's a way in which you can do that. You can, get, you can get a prompt on your cell phone. There's a way in which you can sign up for texts. Here it is. Or sign up uh, for a, a, an email. Daily. I mean, it's going to come Monday, Wednesday, Friday. And we're going to give you ways to start thinking about Romans. Because if we as a congregation are going to tell people about this two for ten, then we want two two families or two households or two people we want to know come to Christ, we have to find ways to articulate what it means when we say we follow Jesus Christ. That's the purpose of this series. But you're going to have to think hard and you're going to have to hold all these whereases, whereas, 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 and we'll get to a therefore in chapter 5 and a therefore in chapter 8. So we're going to spend some time building the whereases, okay? A little bit of background so you know what's going on here. The book of Romans was written by Paul to a group of people who had been in Jerusalem and had escaped to, Jeru to, to Rome. At the end of Acts chapter 7, the church in Rome was in great, I mean, they're in a wonderful place. This is anywhere from five to ten years maybe after Jesus had died and rose again and gone to heaven and the church is growing in Jerusalem. They're numbering probably three to five thousand people at this point in terms of, it's a large mega church congregation doing extremely well in the city. And the, the Roman officials and the Jewish officials look at this growing church and they go, we've got ourselves a problem. We don't know what to do with these people and the way in which they are doing good around the city and what's going on. And they don't like this growing sect. And so persecution against the church in Jerusalem broke out. It came to a culmination at the end of Acts chapter 7 when the first martyrdom took place. They actually murdered one of the original Christians, a fellow by the name of Stephen. And he was stoned to death. And with that, going into Acts chapter 8, before you get to the book of Romans, in Acts chapter 8, something happens in history known as the Christian diaspora. Namely, Christians in Jerusalem ran away from Jerusalem. And the scripture says that as they ran away from Jerusalem, they took the message of Jesus Christ with them. And wherever they went, 
They planted churches, and suddenly the church no longer was confined to Jerusalem, but was all around the Mediterranean basin. Part of that group that escaped from Jerusalem went to Rome, and they got a church started there, and they discovered once they got there that both Jewish people and non-Jews were, con- were connecting with the message of Jesus Christ. And they had a church that was made up of both Jews and non-Jews. And Paul, the leading theologian of the time, says, in the book of Romans, I want to come visit with you, and I want to... I want to st- learn who you are and give you some information. And here's a beginning introduction to who I am and some things for you to think about. Romans is the, his introductory letter to them in anticipation of a visit. And so in order to help you understand it a little bit, we've asked Dylan Bethard to come and bring to you in a dr- dramatic way Romans chapter 1 and Romans 8 and see if you can start beginning to put some arms around all the stuff that's coming our way in the next six weeks. I, Paul, am a devoted slave of Jesus Christ on assignment, authorized as an apostle to proclaim God's words and acts. I write this letter to all believers in Rome, God's friends. I thank God through Jesus for every one of you. That's first. People everywhere keep telling me about your lives of faith. And every time I hear them, I thank him and God, whom I so love to worship and serve by spreading the good news of his son, knows that every time I think of you in my prayers, which is practically all the time, I ask him to clear the way for me to come and see you. The longer this waiting goes on, the deeper the ache. I so want to be there to deliver God's gift in person and watch you grow stronger right before my eyes. And that's why I I can't wait to get to you in Rome, preaching this wonderful good news of God. It's news I'm most proud to proclaim. This extraordinary message of God's powerful plan to rescue everyone who trusts him, starting with the Jews and then right on to everyone else. God's way of putting people right shows up in the acts of faith, confirming what scripture has said all along. The person in right standing before God by trusting him really lives. But God's angry displeasure erupts as acts of human mistrust and wrongdoing and lying accumulate. As people try to put a shroud over the truth, but the basic reality of God is plain enough. Open your eyes and there it is. By taking a long and thoughtful look at what God has created, people have always been able to see what their eyes as such can't see. Eternal power, for instance, and the mystery of his divine being, so that nobody has a good excuse. You see, what happened was this. People knew God perfectly well, but when they didn't treat him like God, refusing to worship him, they trivialized themselves into silliness and confusion so that there was neither sense nor direction left in their lives. They pretended to know it all, but were illiterate regarding life. They traded the glory of God who holds the whole world in his hands for some cheap figurine 
can buy at any roadside stand. So, God said in effect, if that's what you want, then that's what you get. It wasn't long before they were living in a pig pen, smeared with filth, filthy inside and out. And all this because they traded the true God for a fake God and worshiped the God they made instead of the God who made them. Since they didn't bother to acknowledge God, God quit bothering them and let them run loose. Rampant evil, grabbing and grasping, vicious backstabbing. They made life hell on earth with their envy, wanton killing, bickering and cheating. I mean, look at them, mean-spirited, venomous, forked-tongued god-bashers, bullies, swaggerers, insufferable windbags. They keep inventing new ways of wrecking lives. They ditch their parents when they get in the way. Stupid, slimy, cruel, cold-blooded. And it's not as if they don't know better. They know very well they're spitting in God's face. And they don't care. Worse, they hand out prizes to those who can do the worst things best. But the good news, with the arrival of Jesus the Messiah, that fateful dilemma is resolved. The spirit of life in Christ, like a strong wind, has magnificently cleared the air, freeing you from a faded lifetime of brutal tyranny at the hands of sin and death. Nothing faces us because Jesus loves us. I'm absolutely convinced that nothing, nothing living or dead, angelic or demonic, today or tomorrow, high or low, thinkable or unthinkable, absolutely nothing can get between us and God's love. Can you thank Dylan for presenting that to us? Thanks, Dylan. So basically, Romans is this understanding of God, humanity, humanity's problem of sin, and God just releasing us and saying, go do what you want. But there will be consequences. And what are we going to do about that? Romans wants to answer that question. Because Romans, in in essence, says this. In a nutshell, the whole book, that based on your sin, you're not going to make heaven. You're in trouble. And no matter what good you do, you're not going to get there without the help of Jesus Christ. And that's why Jesus came and he died and he rose again. That's Romans in a nutshell, but it takes a long time to get there in some ways, unless you know the whereas, the whereas, the whereas, and the therefore. So let me see if I can explain it to you. If you'll turn to Romans chapter 1, the passage that Dylan just recited for us. Romans chapter 1, verse 16 is where we're going to look in just a minute. And to get there, I want to tell you uh, about an experience I had when I was a little boy. 
You know that growing up in Australia, we, our family lived in the mountains. We lived 60 miles west of Sydney, and you can drive west of Sydney by about 45 miles, and it's all flat, and then you literally hit a cliff that for many years when Australia was first settled, they, they, they couldn't get over. There was no way to get over. They couldn't figure it out until uh, a group of guys figured it out, and then a highway was developed. And uh, when I was a kid, we would go down to visit family in Sydney, and then we'd come to the mountain, and you'd have this switchback road that you'd, sometimes you're down to five, 10 miles an hour to get around the hairpin bends. There's now a highway that goes that way much more easily. But in those days, it was a dangerous road, and if you were any inclination towards car sickness, it was bad news, and you know. And within, within 10 miles, 15 miles, you'd go from sea level to 3,000 feet above sea level. We grew up, I grew up on top of that mountain. There's one of the passes up there, it's called the Victoria Pass, and it goes past Mount York. And I remember, uh, at one point, our family had a little Morris Minor. You know what, the, the minis that we have here in, in the U.S. these days, they're popular little cars. And we were five people in our family, mom and dad in the front, us three kids in the back like this. And uh, we came up across a truck, a semi-truck full of apples that had tipped over on Victoria Pass. And they weren't in boxes or anything. They were literally coming from some orchard somewhere or other. And the driver said, take as many as you want. And so with that, we, <laughs> mom and dad crammed apples in every nook and cranny. I remember it was like we were sitting there, apples behind us, apples. I don't know what we did with all those apples when we got home. I don't remember that. I do remember the apples in the car. I remember that right beside us, looking across the gully, was something that I'd seen dozens of times on those trips. There was this big white cross down the gully and up the cliff face was a cross on top of the mountain there. It probably now, as I think about it, was about 20 feet tall, white, would stand in contrast to the Australian bush. And um, I always wondered, what's the cross mean? And dad would say, somebody died there, and that would be it. But here's the rest of the story. That piece of property had been owned by the Clark family. The Clarks were like the J.C. Penneys of our, of our country. They owned a lot of department stores around the country, and they had a, a kind of a retreat house there on the edge of the cliff. Three kids, a 14-year-old little girl, a 10-year-old little boy, a 6-year-old little boy. The 6-year-old boy's name was Byron. And uh, they, they were up there vacationing one day, and the kids would, um, would, they knew that there was a little trail they could take down the edge of the cliff and kind of make their way across a ledge, and then they could go into some caves that were some 30, 35 feet below the house. And so one day, the two oldest kids, the 14-year-old little girl, 10-year-old little boy, made their way down there. They're going down the ledge, and just as they got to the edge of the cliff, if you will, the, pardon me, the entrance to the cave, they looked back and they realized that their six-year-old Byron was following them. It's really too dangerous for a six-year-old. I want to go if it's too dangerous for a six-year-old. It's too dangerous for a 10-year-old, but that's a different matter. And, and the 14-year-old little girl yells out, Byron, be careful. And with that, he, he would have been standing on the edge of the ledge and sandy soil gave way. And you know what happened. He fell to his death, 150 feet down below. 1899 was when that occurred. In 1902... The dad put up a cross to mark the spot where the little boy had died, and the family actually moved from the house in 1899, never went back, never lived there again. And it occurred to me, uh, when I was a little boy, though, I'd always say, what's with the cross? Why the cross? What's important about the cross? And when I think about cross as some sort of symbolic, um, iconic place, I always think of that cross on Mount York, the Clark Cross, or can you think about the cross behind me right now? Why did, his, why did that father put that cross there? Not ever living there again. It was there until 1989, recently taken down. I hope he put it there because he knew the power of the cross. 
And it's not just a marker or a grave marker. But when we put a cross on a grave, what are we saying? When we wear the cross around our neck, what are we saying? Well, the cross begs this question or answers this question. And that is, are you good enough to go to heaven? Can you do enough good things to negate the bad things that you might do? Particularly in the eyes of God. See, we, we, we have this sense that, okay, I've, I've got a life and at some point I'm going to answer for my life. And I've, if, it's a, if it's, a, it's a scale of any sort, then I've got enough negative that I know I'm in trouble. I've done enough bad things along the way. And certainly if Jesus says that even thinking bad things, which is what he did, even thinking bad things is the same as doing them or even worse, then I got some real trouble. And so can I somehow do enough good things sort of push the balance scale that way? And in that case, when God looks at me, will I be good enough to get to heaven? Romans says, you've got so much bad within you and you've done so much bad that no matter how good you do things, the good will never outweigh the bad. And that's the bad news of Romans. Your sin has messed with you and has messed with you and with me eternally. I cannot do enough good to negate it. That's the bad news of Romans. But there's great news in Romans. There's good news in Romans. As a matter of fact, in Romans chapter 1, there's phenomenal news. Romans chapter 1, verse 16, Paul, writing to these people, says, I want to come visit you. You had to run away from Jerusalem. Here's what I have to say to you. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. Something has God's power in it. This gospel has God's power in it to the point where everyone who believes is, gets salvation, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. Remember, they'd gone from Jerusalem as Jews, but once they got there, they've got Jews and Gentiles in the church, and they're trying to figure out who's the most important and who gets to go first and everything. And he's saying, it's for everybody. In the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. It's not based on what I do, but God's righteousness, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as is written, the righteous will live by faith. What does it mean when Paul says he's not ashamed of this gospel, that if you can believe it, you get to be saved? Saved from what? Saved from the wrath of God. See, he's aware of what I'm like deep inside. I mean, I might do nice things, and I might have a nice persona or a nice reputation in the community. Maybe you do too. But I know what I'm like deep inside. I know the places where I say to myself or you might say to yourself, man, I'm never going to change who I am in this regard. And I'm never going to achieve full potential in this matter just because of my nature. It's not just my bad behavior because I can sometimes correct my bad behavior. But it's the desires of my heart that are wrong. And if, I, if God's going to look at both my behavior and my desires, and if there's any negative within there, if there's any sin there, then I'm in trouble. What am I going to do about that? The power of the gospel is this. That is all changed in Jesus Christ. The righteous will live by faith, not by something that we do, some outward thing we do, but rather a new heart is placed within us, the, the, the book of Jeremiah says. In other words... The gospel is this. I make an agreement with God. God, when you look at me, don't look at the scales of my good versus bad behavior, but rather look at me through the lens of Jesus Christ's cross. 
And in faith, I'm choosing that you're going to do that. It's not based on what acts I do, but rather on a heart change that you have brought about within me through the work of Jesus Christ. And the good news of that is I am forgiven. And that's great news because I'm not worried about this anymore. Instead, I get to do this and experience the love of God. See, Jesus came as a covering for our sin, as a forgiveness for our sin. We read this in Romans chapter 3, verse 22. The righteousness, this righteousness, this, this good news we have is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe, to everyone. It's not like there are groups anymore of ins and outs or the haves and the haves not. This is for everybody. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All of us are in trouble. Regardless of where we were born, we're all in trouble. But then all of us are justified freely. We don't have to pay for it. It comes to us freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. There's truth there. All of us have sins. All of us have sins that we performed. And also we have sins within us. But now in grace we are made right with God through Jesus Christ. You don't deserve it. If you deserved it, it would be payment. If you say, I get grace because I did something for it, then that's not grace, that's payment. Grace comes to us freely. And now in grace, we are made right with God through Jesus Christ. How? How does that happen? We prayerfully ask God to see us through the lens of Jesus Christ, to have Jesus stand between us and the wrath of God. When I say the wrath of God, I mean the wrath of God. Scripture is quite plain that God will not stand for sin. There are plenty of examples of it throughout Scripture. The moment sin enters a picture, that person, that nation, that entity is in deep, deep trouble. God will not have any contact with sin whatsoever. Will not be, if you will, be contaminated by sin. And so if you have sin of any sort, you're in trouble. Romans 3 says we've all got sin. And so then we pray, God, I know based on who I am, we can't be, I can't be good enough for God. I can't be good enough for you, but will you forgive me? And here's, here it is. Here's the whereas. Whereas you have sinned, Romans says, whereas you are consequently condemned, but whereas Jesus died for you, your sin is forgiven, and you get to experience the full love of God in ways that you can't even fully explain. Some of you would say, wouldn't it be better if there was no penalty for sin at all? Well, in some ways, I suppose, except God, by being God, cannot be exposed to sin. And as a result, there is judgment for sin. And there's God's wrath for sin. And Romans has all that in there. That's why the cross is so powerful. The cross is all the more important because of God's wrath and God's inability and unwillingness to be in contact with sin. See, the cross has power because it stands in contrast to God's judgment. Without judgment, Jesus didn't need to come. Without judgment, Jesus' death is meaningless. Without judgment, God's grace is meaningless. But we are people who get to choose. We say, we say God's got judgment and God's got grace. Which one are you going to take? You get to have one or the other. You can either have God's judgment for your sin or you can have God's grace for your sin. Which one are you going to take? I'm taking the grace. That's why the Apostle Paul says, this gospel is a power of God that brings salvation. I'm no longer condemned to my sin and as a result of my sin. And so prayerfully, I ask God, will you see me through the lens of Jesus and his cross? And you know what that's called? That's called accepting God's grace. And if you've done that, you've moved from being religious where you're trying to do good acts to actually being a Christian, a follower of Jesus Christ. A Christian is someone who says, I can't do it. I can't fix it myself. 
Now, of course, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, there are obviously implications regarding our behavior and our thinking and our lifestyle, and we'll get into that in the coming weeks. But for now, for today, hear what Romans chapter 10 says about this believing. Romans chapter 10, verse 9 says, If you declare with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, if you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. Folks, I know who I am. I'm toast without the work of Jesus Christ. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified. It's with your mouth that you profess your faith and you're saved. I want to declare for all of you to hear, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ today. Not because you need to hear it, but because I need to hear it. I need to be reminded that my sin is completely forgiven. If you believe in your heart and state with your mouth, then the scales of good versus bad are not just tipped in your way. They're, they're tipped in heaven's favor. And the biblical language is you're saved. People say, oh, are you saved? Are you not saved? I mean, we, do we know what that means? When we say we are saved, we are saved from the consequences of our sin. And this business that all of us have this problem of sin is negated in our lives. So, as a young child traveling up and down that mountain road, we'd pass by that cross where the six-year-old fell to his death. Did his family know why they put it there? I don't know. I trust that they understood the significance of the cross. If so, then they were relying on the power of Jesus' gospel as that little boy moved from life to eternity. Because here's what Romans chapter 10 says. Everyone who calls in the name of Jesus Christ will be saved. In other words, everyone who calls on the name of Jesus Christ will be forgiven. Your sins are forgiven and grace is all over you. You got God's grace, you got God's judgment. Which one will you choose? Now, there are implications. There are responses to that. We should be people who take a hold of that grace, I would suggest. Take a hold of faith in Jesus Christ and realize that if you've done that, you were a Christian. Now, you may have lots to learn. You may be a Christian just starting today. Fair enough. And there's a lot to learn. But now you are a follower of Jesus Christ and there's a fire within inside you that you haven't yet tapped. There was a 5th century bishop in the early church who um, perhaps explained it best what this fire inside us is and the possibility and just the, the power that is there, this power of the gospel. He said that the gospel is like a, a little black grain of pepper in your mouth. And if you have one grain of pepper in your mouth and it's just sitting on your tongue, you're not really going to know what it's like. You're not going to know the fire that's in that pepper. He said, some people take a hold of Christian faith and they go, it's nice to be a Christian and it's nice to do good to other people and to do what Jesus said and to be kind and so forth and so on. And they, in in fact, nullify the gospel at that point. Because to to get to the fire and the heat of the gospel, to the fire and the heat of that that grain of pepper, what do you have to do? You have to bite down on it, right? And the moment you bite down on that pepper, man, the fire comes out. And depending what kind of pepper it is, depends how hot it gets. For too many people, they say, well, it's nice to be Christianity, and I suppose to believe in Christianity and it's a nice proposition that maybe my sins might be forgiven. Fair enough. But it's possible to trust in Christianity and not trust in Christ. If you're doing that, Christianity is simply a good religion. We expect it to live well and treat others with kindness. That's nice, but that's holding the pepper on the edge of your tongue and not experiencing the fire deep within you. Bring the story of Jesus Christ into your life. Bite down. Say, in faith, I believe that Jesus Christ died for me, that my sins can be forgiven. I don't fully understand it all. I don't have the full language to articulate this love of God for me. But I'm going to, in faith, accept it. I'm going to bring the story of Jesus into my life 
And you know what happens as a result? Romans chapter 10, verse 9 says this. I think it says this. <laughs> Can we hear it? See it, guys? There it is. Thanks, guys. If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you didn't do it. There's no act there, okay? There's nothing where you have to force yourself to act differently. If you declare with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, what happens? You are saved. You're taking grace saying, I'm going to pass the judgment. I'm going to pass on that. And I'm going to accept the salvation of Jesus Christ. It's by faith. It's by believing, not personal striving. Now, we've got more coming in the weeks. But here's in the weeks ahead. But I would suggest to you today, I want you to sign on. I want you to say, hey, that's me. I need to get past this business of just trying to work my way to heaven and maybe tip the scales in, you know, if I can. You can't. Romans says you can't. All of us have sinned. All of us are falling short of the mark of God. But you can make it if you say, I'm going to take the grace that's available through Jesus Christ. And I'd like to pray with you about that right now. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you'd help us. I guess you could say in, in, in that metaphor and would be to bite down on this today and experience the heat of the power of the gospel within us. Well, there are some here in this room who've walked with Christ for 30, 40, 50, 70 years. And Lord, I thank you for that. And I thank you, God, that they have experienced a forgiveness of sins that is decades old now. And Lord, yet there are also some in the room who have yet to kind of go from being religious to actually being a follower of Jesus Christ. Lord, we, don't, we, we, want, we want to rely on what Jesus did, not what we did. We want to rely on the power of the cross, not our power. We want to rely on a new heart that you give us, not our old heart. We want our souls to be refreshed by you. We want our eternal destiny to be shaped by the work and the power and the cross of Christ. So in faith today, we would say and declare that we believe Jesus came as God in the flesh and that he died and he rose again for our sins. We're striving with every part of who we are to believe that, knowing that you look down upon us as a loving father and we don't yet have the full words to articulate it all, but God, we're going to rest in that love today. In Jesus' name, amen.